Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Selah Fellowship podcast for our Sunday services. Please open your Bibles as we dive into our study this morning. Amen. Amen. Hey, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, if you would. We're going to continue there. Last week, uh, we kind of left off chapter 3 with this genealogy of Jesus. And as I pointed out, it was going through Mary, his mother, because not only is that where you get your Hebrew Jewish heritage, yeah, your Jewish heritage, right? Um, But it's also because, well, (laughs) Jesus wasn't really related to Joseph at all, because he was and is the son of God. And, And that's something that we absolutely were told, right? And, you know, I want to assure you that all this is written down for our assurance of the faith in Jesus Christ that we proclaim, as well as the understanding to walk in victory or victoriously in this faith that we proclaim in Jesus Christ. So all that is what God wrote this down for. It, and so it's essential for us to follow that example that Jesus gave us. And we talked about that when we looked at his baptism, which we understand to be, a, you know, an outward profession of what God has done inwardly, you know, that forgiveness of sin. So I'm, I'm going down and I'm identifying with Jesus' death, his resurrection, and now the new life of walking in the spirit. Well, Jesus didn't have to repent of sins to have that outward expression. So what, what the heck? What did he do it for? He did it for identification with us. The example set before us, the picture that we're supposed to follow in, And it's no different today now as we get into chapter 4, where we see what happens next for Jesus is also what our life is ongoing in. And that is the temptations, the attacks of our flesh, of this world, and of Satan. Yes, we do have an enemy, and he would have us derailed or detoured from what God has called us to be. So we actually... um, As we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 4, it is actually the continuation of the narrative that began in chapter 3 in verses 21 and 22. And then there was that little interjection of the genealogy, which, again, Luke is writing from the perspective of going all the way back to Adam from Mary to show, you know, through Mary, that it shows that not only is Jesus qualified as the Son of God, the Messiah, through the lineage, but he also goes all the way back to the heritage we all participate in, which is Adam as being our initial father. So he's set the stage now for what it is for us to walk on now in victory. So if you look at verse 21 in chapter 3, it says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. So there we have in those two verses, again, the assurance and the understanding, the assurance, you are my beloved son. God's son, God the son, Jesus, God, right? Related to the father. We also have the understanding of what happened next for him now to start his public ministry and be victorious. Remember, Jesus is walking 100% man, human, birth in flesh, right? Now empowered by the spirit of God upon him that he can show us an example to us how it is that we are supposed to walk in this same victory right? He didn't do it as God. If he did, well, then 
what's the point? I mean, you know, well, sure, he could do that. He was God. No, he was man, left his position in heaven, stepped down from that throne to come, never leaving his deity, but leaving behind all, all the perks of that position and authority that he might represent to us how we then, in identification again through baptism and now through walking in the spirit, can have that same victory. So this is what we need to look for in our own lives. This now epi experience, the Holy Spirit. Now this is that visual, you know, visual thing. They're, they're all looking and seeing it. Holy Spirit coming down like, wow, why are we seeing that? Well, because you can't see the spirit. So God did this in a way that we would have that record that all those that were standing there would go, that is the Messiah. He is because the Spirit of God now rests upon him, right? And, and we need that same epi experience. It's what Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24 and then again in Acts chapter 1, right? When he said, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. That's epi, the word epi, the epi experience, right? But tarry, hang out in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And of course, that took place in Acts chapter 2, which was the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit birthed the church. And we know how that was an exciting moment. And, and really, that was now the whole church. Peter, the one scared of a little teenage girl who was like identifying him as a Christ follower, to now the man that stands up and goes, oh no, this is that in Joel. And by the way, you all need to get saved. And 3,000 people joined the church. I mean, this is the power of God upon the calls in our lives. And as Pastor Michael just pointed out, we have all that call on us to go. Now, whether you go across the world, as we see that we have Ignite students that do, or you go next door to the neighbor or across the street or somewhere in your individual calling of work or vocation or who God's put around you, right? You go. In his name, now he's showing in his power the necessity of it, you know? And then how to stand in victory because the enemy will try to take you out. How do we walk in victory? So, we just read what happened. Now we pick it up, chapter 4, verse 1. Then, and meaning, then meaning now after this epi experience, Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. Sometimes the scripture just says it like it is, right? And so we understand that, right? He's hungry. So after this experience now, he is brought, led by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this is supposed to be our experience. This is supposed to be us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it says this, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, same Holy Spirit, these are sons of God. And I might add, these are daughters of God, right, that are led by the Holy Spirit, his Spirit now leading us. That, again, is that evidence of baptism. We come out of the water, now we're committed new life in Christ. Old person's dead, behold, all things are new, old things have passed away, I'm a new creation in Christ. Scripture all confirms this, right? And so Jesus now is going to example to us this victory of life in walking through the temptations that we live in daily. Now, a couple things to point out. Again, why does he go through this? It's for the identification purposes with us. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, 
we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, we know that Jesus is our high priest. That's what he's referred to, one of his referrals in, in Hebrews, right? We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I love the next verse. It goes right into, let us therefore, the conclusion of that, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, so as we face these temptations, as we, oh my goodness, this is coming at me again, we go to the throne of God. We don't run from him. We don't, are not ashamed of him or of being somehow approaching of him like, oh my gosh, he won't understand this one. I'm, be, I'm being tempted again. You know, it's like, no, that, that's exactly what he did, what he went through, yet without sin, to gain, to prove, to relate that victory to us that we now can have. So you go to the throne boldly. Now, again, tempted in all points. So if you're somewhere this morning and you're thinking, man, this is really a struggle for me. I, I can't keep this right in my, in my walk. I keep falling victim to this. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. Exactly. What he's telling you now and what the scripture is revealing to us is what to do about it. So again, we pay attention, right? Now, I do want you to know that temptation is not sin. Jesus, tempted in all points as we are. So we know that then without sin, him living that perfect life of victory, temptation's not the sin. It's what you do with it that leads to trouble, right? And that's what we have to be, be aware of. Even back in Genesis, when God was speaking to Cain, the, the brother gone bad, right? He said, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. Even way back in the beginning, God was saying, this is a problem, but you should rule over it. We have that charge, right? And again, Jesus is showing us how to do it. Now, I want you also to notice in those two verses right there, right, that Jesus was tempted for 40 days. So the, the, in the context in the Greek is for the full 40 days. So it wasn't just... These, he's going he's gonna to give us these three basic attack points that, have, that, that every temptation is somehow a filter through, right? And that affect our lives. But it's just not these three. He just boils it down so that we would know where these things come from as they do affect us, right? These are the same attack points, the same temptation angles that Satan took with Eve in the garden. Same exact things, right? He attacked the physical, he attacked the emotional, and he attacked the spiritual. Body, soul, and spirit. Those same three elements that we're made of. That's how he plays it, right? So part of this is us being able to identify those vulnerabilities in our own flesh, in our own self, to be able to win, to be able to battle, to fight, right? John puts it this way in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, let me also point out that Satan does control this world. Now, not in the omnipotent sense, the all-powerful, right? He can only do what God allows him to do. He's a created being. He's not the opposite of God. He is a created cherubim gone bad. 
And so yet he has power and he has and is given, I'll say it that way, authority to be able to do things, right? Again, that's why I say it's so important that we know our vulnerabilities and recognize what is a weak spot for ourselves because he watches, he knows, and he will come after you. Now, I don't think Satan really pays that much attention to me. My flesh and this world give me enough trouble. But it's a truth of how all these things are used because he has a lot of helpers. Those are what we know as demons, fallen angels, right? And they're all working this plan along with him. He doesn't know the future, but he knows his future is limited because he knows scripture, as we're going to see today. Well, he knows his versions of it. He, you know, distorts it, right? But specifically, you know, I, I, you know, again, Luke being the position that he has is very specific about how we are tempted and what comes at us. And so Satan, or in this case, as he's going to refer to him as the devil, Right, and those of you that are old enough, right? Remember, the devil made me do it. You know, it's like, see, the old people in here all laughed, and the young people are going, "What the?" You know, because they don't understand what that means. But we all remember Flip Wilson as Geraldine blaming it. Everything was on the devil. The devil made me do it. Well, no, the word devil, which Luke is very specific in using here, as other places he'll use the word Satan, who is the adversary, the one against us. The word devil is is diablos right, in the Greek, and it means slanderer or false accuser. One of the ways he comes after us is by slandering us, accusing us falsely. In fact, he's accusing us night and day, it says, before the Father, which is why I'm so blessed that Jesus sits there and makes intercession for me daily, you know, as what he does as a continued work, right? But this, this is the temptation that we all have to live through, these, these three temptations. And I remind you, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. We're all in the same boat together. Nobody in here has a worse, like, oh my gosh, you have no idea what I'm tempted with. Oh, it's so, sorry, get in line. We're all, at, we're all equal, <laughs> literally, at the, the human place of these temptations, right? It's not common to man, but... Sharp contrast. God is faithful, who will not allow us to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is faithful. So the devil didn't make you do nothing because God is faithful, always has a way of escape. Do you take it? Well, I don't know what the the way of escape is all the time. He's going to tell us right now how to win, how to walk in this victory. I love this, right? Now, James tells us that we are tempted and drawn away by our own desires. James also tells us in in chapter 1 right away, right, that God cannot be tempted, so God does not tempt. But God does allow us to be tested, Word is interchangeable in some of the scriptures, tempted or tested, right? That our faith might be proven. That's literally what it says. In fact, the word temptation, you know, temptation's overtaken you, is actually the word proving. No proving has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. No proving, yeah, like in testing the metal to see what it's made of. Now, God already knows what I'm made of right? He wants me to know what I'm made of. 
because he wants me to know where I run, where I go, what my faith is the focus of when these things hit. And again, they're hitting from these three areas. The flesh, the soul, or the emotions. That's our personality, kind of, right? And then our spiritual pride of who we are or who we believe we should be or want to be or whatever, right? But anyway, it is a, it's a 40-day testing and, and then we get into the three major ones, right, which we're going to talk about. And it couldn't have come at a worse time because he is hungry. And, of course, the first testing is going to go after the flesh, the appetite, right? So when you think about flesh, just don't think about lunch today. You know, how long is it? When do we get? Are we going to have some bread? You know, it's like it's not about that. It is literally about the hunger the hungers, right, that you go through. That's why Jesus said, you know, I'm, I'm the bread of life. It's like, eat of me, partake of me, and you won't hunger anymore. You won't have those desires that tempt you and draw you away by your own desires to a plan that isn't God's for you. Find satisfaction in me. That's why he said those things, right? So we, we know. Now, again, this is how we then can handle it. So we'll pick up verse 3. And the devil, the diablo, said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan. Well, that sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? I thought he was saying that to somebody else. Uh, Interesting, right? Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord God and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He don't ever go away completely. You have to keep yourself prepared always, right? This is what we're being shown. So this first temptation, again, we are body, soul, and spirit when we come to Christ. After our spirit now is regenerated, born again, we now are spirit, soul, and body. Body on the bottom, spirit, soul, always controlled, right, in the center. But in the first place, controlled by the body, soul, spirit, making those choices, again, you know, based on my hungers and my desires. But then as it gets flipped by God, now I'm spirit, soul, and body. I'm supposed to be controlled, my emotions, my directions, by the Spirit of God. Hence the importance of making sure that the Spirit of God is upon me. Not just in me, but upon me, as Jesus has exampled. Did he ever not have the Spirit of God in him? No. He had the Spirit like no other, except the first Adam, who chose not to fight 
but surrendered. That's why the scriptures can say, Satan can say, this world, all this, this was delivered to me. And Jesus doesn't go, what are you talking about? Let me show you somebody. He doesn't, doesn't argue. He's in control of it because it was handed over to him by Adam, who surrendered. We are told to fight. And we were given these tools, right? This is Satan's attempt to get Jesus to fulfill a legitimate desire. He is hungry in an illegitimate way. We need to be careful of that same desire, that same temptation, right? If you are the son of God, that is not a doubt statement. That is an affirmation statement. It really can read in all three verses, since you are the son of God. Satan knows he is. God the Father has just proclaimed it, right? So there ain't no doubt in here. And we see as demons start to show up that they very much recognize who he is, right? These are the same three temptational points that Eve went through. In fact, it says in Genesis 3, 6, that when the woman, Eve, saw that the tree, which they were not supposed to eat of, right? The tree was good for food. There's the body, right? That it was pleasant to the eye. Ooh, there's the emotions. I like that, right? And the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate and also gave to her husband and he ate. Desirable to make one wise. The idea of glory, the idea of attention, the idea of knowing, of spiritual closeness, of higher authority, those those three basics are what attack us continuously, and we need to be aware of it, right? This, the, what Satan is doing right now is really tempting Jesus to do a miracle that meets his own need, not trusting in God the Father to provide, as in there would be an end to this, there will be food at the end of this, God has, he is going to take care of me, he is going to provide for me, he's going to have me live, how do I know that? Because he has a call on my life, and he has a purpose for me to go forward and doing. Jesus was well aware of his purpose, as do we need to be also, right? Ephesians 2.10, we're created in him now for good works that we should walk in them. God's created us. Pastor Michael pointing out those, the scripture this morning, go, Go into all the, we're all supposed to be going all the time. That is an ongoing active verb. Like we're always going all everywhere we go. We're going makes sense, right? You go someplace, you're going. Well, we're all supposed to be going in the name of Jesus everywhere we go. So we all have this, but see the attack. It, all of a sudden we have a desire. We have this hunger and it's like, man, God's not fair. Does he even really care about, about what's going on here? Has he, has he forgotten about me? Is he true? And isn't that what Satan said to Eve? Did God really say? So watch it. Notice what Jesus does to, again, win the battle. He brings the word of God, which Satan would have us all to doubt, to question. He brings it to the forefront of the discussion and defeats Satan with it. And I always want to point out, all three victories are brought from the word, from the book of Deuteronomy, that the, the Old Testament, the law. In fact, Deuteronomy is the law, literally. It, it's the book that, that restates it all. Do you know the Old Testament? Do you think there's no power there? Is it like, well, it doesn't really have anything to do with it. I'm all about grace, 
great. The Old Testament is filled with God's grace. The fact that he didn't wipe man out every time he sinned was God's grace. Because we have the Spirit of God in us, right? So again, important that we know the Word, right? You need to know the Word to battle those strange thoughts that come. Bringing thoughts under captivity, right? Knowing that God has a hope and a future for you. A plan. It's an absolute. Knowing in Hebrews 13, 5, where he says, He will never leave you and never forsake you. Never. Never. Right? 1 Timothy 6, 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. How much of the time we get uncontent, we're, we, we feel like there's supposed to be you know, more and stuff. I need to filter everything that I have coming at me, be it a flesh, a world, or an attack by some outward accuser, right, through the filter of God's word, knowing who I am and who he is in me and who I am to him. I got to filter everything through this. There's a warning in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. Many walk of whom I told you often. This is Paul speaking, right? And now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. Hold that. Whom, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. I'm hungry. Hungry, their God is their, belly, is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who sets their mind on earthly things. We got to make sure we don't go there, because Paul tells us there's many who have, who he weeps as he tells us about, because they are now enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, next temptation there in five through eight is the lust of the eye, that soul desire, right? It was pleasing to the eye when Eve looked at it. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul refers to Satan as the God, small g, of this world, right? And how he has blinded unbelievers. So that's why no matter how much truth you share with an unbeliever, they'll just look at you like, you're nuts, right? And scripture tells us that, right? In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, it tells us that the natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit because they are foolishness to him. You gotta be kidding me. Right? It takes the Spirit of God in you to be able to discern, to hear, to be instructed by the Word of God in truth and to believe it. No man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. So it's an evidence to us. But there's also a warning here to then watch out for the world that is controlled by the enemy. James tells us in James 4.4, 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, separation with God? Whoever, you know, being an enemy of God... And therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, Jesus will eventually, Revelation makes it clear, right, redeem the world. He comes and he takes the deed back that Adam did turn over to Satan, right? But Jesus did, just didn't come looking for a land deal when he came. He came looking for a soul deal, your soul, my soul. That's what he died for. And so don't ever look at that as being somehow shallow or less of a reason. You are why he came. Take it personally. You must, right? And the only way that he could redeem you and I, because he asked the Father three times, if there's any other way, man, can we... Well, I'm sure he didn't call Father man, but is there any other way that we cannot do this Then I have to go to the cross 
and shed my blood. No, because there is no remission of sin, no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Old Testament, do you know that? It had to be the blood of Jesus, and it had to be on his cross, that instrument of death and suffering that was the ultimate shame and disgrace because he was paying for the sins of the whole world. And yet there are those who are the enemies now of the cross because they've given themselves over to their desires, to the temptations of what's been placed before them. I don't know, I, this, this gets really serious to me, right? Satan is offering a compromise to Jesus if he will only worship him. Just bow down and worship me, man. And, and, and yet he makes that same temptation to us. Like, you can find fulfillment in life without the cross, with, without Jesus, without having to lose your life. You don't have to lose your life to gain it. Come this way, and you can gain all kinds of life. No, it, it is his lie. One of the qualifications for being a disciple is what? You deny yourself, you pick up your cross, and you follow Jesus. It's essential that we all have that individual mission. Again, what, you know, what we just watched a video of, of doing, right? It is, our, our cross is not, you know, I'm bald. This is not a cross I have to bear, all right? I'm just letting you all know it. It's a genetic trait of my family history, right? The cross is me not putting my agenda and my desire and my goals up, but lifting up Jesus, God's desire, his work, his calling on my life, ahead of my own. That's what it is to bear my cross. Now, that many times comes with a suffering and a denial of what I'd really love to do or my flesh would like fulfilled, but Jesus is saying, but this is more the life I have for you, and that life goes right into eternity, life abundant. Right? But Satan would have us to get ripped off. Get behind me, Satan. Again, you know it from Matthew 16, 23, where Jesus says it to Peter. Why does Jesus say it to Peter? Because Peter was trying to detour Jesus from going forward to his cross. Our salvation. He's trying to get him to not do it. He constantly wants to derail us. Has he put in front of you a derailment to the call of God on your life? to the cross you are to bear for him. you got to be able to recognize it. How do I do that? The word of God. Again, how he defeats Satan. Galatians 5, 25, 24 and 25 says, Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Again, coming to God and saying, Not my will be done, but yours. That's what I know I need because Jesus exampled it, right? If not, we can become like Demas. Do you remember Demas? Paul talks about him in Philemon chapter 1 as a fellow worker. He greets you. He's with me. He's fighting the good fight. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's basically last will and testament, like I'm, I'm checking out here. He says that Demas has deserted him for he loved this present world. Demas, who had every possibility of eternal power, reward, and, and honor, 
loved this present world and deserted the call for it. It's important that we recognize that, right? Satan wants to distract us and get us to deny the cross. And what's the offer that he might make you? And, and Satan is really good at always maximizing somehow the benefit of his offer while minimizing the consequence if you choose it. He's really good at that. Begin the word of God. Notice also that Jesus equates worshiping the Lord with serving him. So it's not just about bowing down. It literally is how one of, one of, one of our ways of expression, we sang worship songs, right? That's a way of worshiping. We give, we, we offer alms to God, you know, our resources back to him that he's given to us, that his work might go forward. Well, also in serving him is worship. That goes right alongside of it. Jesus, Jesus shows it here, right? So it's not just bowing down, it's getting up and getting busy. You and I need to know what God has called us to, what he puts before us as his work, and be able to recognize it, identify it. That's not some big, heavy, like, you know, everybody gets a pastor card, or, you know, you got to carry one of the four, you know, L, you know, directions of position in the church from Ephesians 4, 11, 12. That's not what it's saying. Know when and where God wants to use you and how his, by his spirit, he anoints you and empowers you to do it. Always just being about serving. That's what it is. Got to be about it. And then lastly, but not leastly, there is not an order, specific order to these, right? Just got to watch out for them, right? That he seeks to beat Jesus now at his own game. So he throws scripture at him, right? He's quoting there from Psalm 91. Trouble is, he doesn't quote it accurately. He leaves some things out which is why we are warned in Revelation, don't add and don't take away, or you're in trouble, because that's how the enemy plays it. He'll share scripture. He uses scripture against scripture. Jesus uses scripture to prove scripture. No, no contrast here, no, no like disagreement. There's not, God doesn't have a, a book that's written of confusion and somehow, well, that's a contradiction. And no, it's not. Jesus shows that scripture proves scripture. It's one solid throw all the way down. And if there's something I don't understand, it is my problem, let me tell you, not God's. And so I'm the one that needs to study, go deeper, and find out why this scripture says this, if this one is saying that, and how to marry the two together by the Spirit of God working in me and through me and being upon me. Got to be aware of that, right? So here, he, he tries to use it as a weapon, right? Again, out of context, leaves a little part out, right? This is showing that pride of life temptation now. Look, you know you're the son of God, since you are. Here's the pinnacle of the temple. All the people down there, throw yourself off. Because his word says, right, that the angels will lift you up. You won't even stumble your toe on that one. So go ahead and jump. Imagine how your ministry will be solidified in everybody's mind. I mean, you will be Messiah because God's not going to let you die. So take it, grab it, go for it. And how Jesus explains it is, that is tempting my father. That is making my will to be glorified, to move the plan forward, to have what I know is mine, but to have it in my time, my way, at God's expense. And Jesus says, I won't do it. We have to be warned not to do it either. 
It's so interesting. I mean, I remember first getting an inkling of my calling to be a pastor teacher, which was ridiculous because I don't like being in front of people. And I don't like speaking. And there's, I mean, oh my goodness. I, I didn't know but my age. I was like 22, probably 23. You know, yeah, I was really 20. No, I was probably 24. And, um, but, but it was ridiculous. But then it was 10 years later where that opportunity was given. Until then, it was about the preparation. God just pouring into me, refining me, rebuking me, getting, you know, getting me to a place where then when the opportunity was asked, it wasn't about me seeking it or going after it or grabbing it. It was like, oh, I, I know he's telling me to do this. I don't want to do it, but okay, I'll step out. And then he gets proven. That's what's going on here. But, again, Eve taking that pride of life and saying, I want, I want to be like God. And we can so easily want that glory that we can grab it. And we just go after the opportunity without the word of God confirming the word of God to me. But take it out of context or, or reach for that temptation. Watch it, because so many people crash when they go after what they believe is God's call or God's place for them to be in service, you know, like this deliberate thing, but it's because they didn't get confirmation. There wasn't that word that said now. Remember, we talked about it last week. There is God's call, but there is also God's timing for that call. You got to make sure that you're walking in both. You, you, You know, you... It's not about this exaggeration of spectacular ministry that Satan right now is trying to get Jesus to buy into. It is the faithfulness of a servant to perform what God has given. And you think of those, if you watch, if you watch any Christian television, you've probably seen those guys, right, that have spectacular testimonies and ministry they're trying to show you to, of course, get your support and get you to you know, write your checks and, and cut it in and stuff. Uh-uh. Jesus rejected that opportunity and said he and said he's lifting up the word first and foremost to defeat the temptation. He's worshiping God by surrendering his life as a service to God's plan, not my will, but your will be done. And he's not going beyond the timing or the context of what the scripture is telling him by the Holy Spirit. Again, why we need the Spirit on us at all times. Man, so much there to glean, but we, you know, we just got to keep it moving so we can get through. Then Jesus returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee, again, being led by the Spirit. Now he's going to Galilee. News of him went out through all and the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, bringing, being glorified by all. So now Jesus is going back to his hometown. He's starting his public ministry. It, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, all basically, that's all we get for the first couple years. This is the first year, basically, of Jesus' ministry. John records it for us in John chapter 2 to 5. You can read about it, and then you know what was Jesus doing in those two chapters, those two verses. Well, that's what he was doing, right? So you can go about it and find out there. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as custom was, he went into the synagogues on the Sabbath day and stood up and read. And he handed... And, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. 
And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recover of sight, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The teacher, back in this day, the teachers would sit and the, the students would all stand, right? So he is qualifying himself now as being this authoritative rabbi. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, he, is he not Joseph's son? So he's back in his hometown, see, and they're, they're going, wait a minute. This guy is saying this kind of authoritative role of Messiah is now being his? It, now, again, it's no accident that the book of Isaiah was handed, well, it was a scroll, you know, back in that day, that a scroll was handed to him. It was unrolled to this point, and Jesus now reads it and says, these six things are now being fulfilled in your sight. This is going to happen. But I just want to point out that what happens first and foremost is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So not only, again, is he qualifying the the epi experience of the Holy Spirit being upon him to fulfill the work of the ministry, but he's also saying upon me. This is a messianic verse in Isaiah, meaning that it's for the Messiah. So he's identifying straight up that he is the Messiah, right? But again, the fact that we need that same power upon us, Jesus is letting us know that. And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But none of them was, but none but to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. That's like heated anger. And rose up to thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the, to the bow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. So what, what's happening here is they don't really believe, you know, isn't this Joseph's sons? I'm not sure about that. So what Jesus does is rebuke them, basically in saying, look, you don't believe, so it's not going to be done for you as you would want. They're saying, give us a sign, show us something. And he's saying, look, when Elijah was here, when Elisha was around, there were lots of widows that had need because there was a famine. There were lots of lepers walking around that needed healing. And yet God only visited two of them, and they were both Gentiles. That's why they get so angry. Knowing that the Spirit of God on you as you proclaim his truth, and you show people what truth actually says in 
contrast to their religious belief and where they think they are and what God owes them, they will get angry with you. Now, Jesus kind of says, I'm not really going to show you a miracle, but he literally does as he passes through them in the midst of them and gets away. I don't don't know how that worked out, but somehow he was able to get through the mob and get out of there because they wanted to kill him. They were so angry that, that, that he made it clear, God loves you and me. Coming, coming literally after us and, and going to minister to us. And so that's what Jesus is saying, and that is what they are so mad at. Then he went down to Capernaum. You know, that was kind of like his headquarter place, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them in, uh, on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now, in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So, again, the demons know Jesus, right? And they even tremble, the scripture says, but they don't get salvation. They're not repenting. They're only identifying, right? But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him into the midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is. For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding regions. Now, this is something that... You know, we kind of look at and we kind of scoff at and we think, oh, you know, demon possession and stuff. Let me assure you, it is not so real here in America because, again, we have these three temptations, our flesh, the world, and Satan, the demons, right? Well, the world and the flesh are doing a really good job here in America, so the demons don't need to be around much. But don't think that they aren't. I was just at pastor prayer this uh, last Thursday, and one of the pastors was sharing that he was confronted by a demon-possessed guy in, uh, down at the hospital in Kalspell. Guy was brought in, was uh, just flipped out on drugs, but had like kept going back between cognitive as the guy and then all of a sudden this spirit addressing him and letting him know that he had control of this guy and that the guy would do what he wanted to do. And he was praying and, and the guy was screaming out and thrashing and... And, you know, and so he had to back off. The pastor backed off because he knew that if that continued, of course, they'd ask him to leave, you know, and they don't want that kind of disruption in the hospital. But it was abs- the, the demon identified himself. You know, like, Steve, come on, really? Like, is this one of the, you're just trying to get our attention? No, this is going on. We live in this beautiful little community of white fish, and we have the ski mountain right there, and the little snow is still up there a little bit, and it's so heavenly and so wonderful. And you have no idea of the demonic activity that actually goes on in a community that has such a large witch community, the Wickham the, that are here, the man, uh, the sacrifices going on, all kinds of demonic activity out there. That's why it's so important that we come here to get instructed to do the work of ministry. This is not a checklist for God for you this morning. Went to church. Okay, good. Good for a week. He's preparing you to take you out there for who you're going to be confronted by, the temptations that will come at you. And notice that Jesus doesn't let them speak. Why? Well, because the character of a witness matters to God. And he doesn't need them to be identifying him. So he, he, he silences them and, and, and just shuts it down. Now, when he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, 
But Simon's wife's mother was ill with a high fever, and they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. Now, it's not just the demons that are subject to what Jesus said. It's also illness. Again, by his stripes we are healed. So the idea of asking to be healed, no matter how severe, no matter how serious, this high fever is extreme like heat, fervent heat that she's going through. And God wants us to know nothing is impossible for him. He's the God of all flesh. So ask. I also like to point out that Peter was married, and that gives a big problem if you're a former Catholic and he was the Pope. But anyway, that always gets a big like, whoa, when I say it in Chicago. But I know here we're, you know, we're all like, you know, it's a whatever. Anyway, when the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid hands on them, every one of them, and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, you are the Christ. Again, identification, the son of God. And he rebuked them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Now, when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. And the crowd sought him to come to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Jesus coming to bring the kingdom of God. Everybody's around him. He's getting lifted up. He's getting popular. They're all hearing it. He's laying hands on people and demons are coming out and infirmities are being healed and they want the more. And what does he do? He draws away and Mark's gospel tells us to pray. Jesus was busy, but he wasn't too busy for God. Here in the ministry, we call it on the mount time. He would draw away to get empowered for the purpose which he came was to share the gospel proclaimed through Isaiah, right? To preach that, that good news of salvation to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. And all of that came from his anointing of the Holy Spirit and his seeking of God for direction. If he needed it, how much more do we need it to be able to stand against these temptations? The flesh, the world, and the enemy that is real. Amen? Thank you for joining us as we studied the Word this morning. If you would like more information about Salem Fellowship, please visit us on the web at salafellowship.org. While you are there, feel free to check out some of our other messages and past book studies. Thank you again, and God bless.